And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 28th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive... Faraway service members will have an easier way to absentee vote under this DARPA project. Plus, for Defense Department financial management systems, a not-so-pretty picture. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, Postal Service officials say that USPS has been overpaying into the civil service retirement system for decades. And that's a major factor behind billions of dollars in annual net losses. Now the National Association of Letter Carriers is calling on the Biden administration to address the problem. It's calling on the Office of Personnel Management, which administers CSRS benefits, to recalculate what USPS should contribute every year. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with NALC National President Brian Renfro. Several years ago, we uh, identified three areas where we thought that it was important for the Postal Service's long-term financial sustainability that we affected some change from a policy standpoint. There are certainly things that the Postal Service is doing and are necessary to adapt and become more efficient. The work we do has changed in a lot of ways. But from purely a policy standpoint, we identified three um, changes that need to be made. One of those changes was to repeal the mandate from the 2006 Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act to pre-fund health benefits for retirees decades in advance. Thankfully, that was addressed through post-reform legislation that was signed into law in 2022. That was legislative in nature. The second one is also legislative in nature, and it is something we're still working on. So uh, while that mandate to pre-fund is gone, the Postal Service still has set aside tens of billions of dollars to pay for retiree health care in the future. The big issue is that they are very limited in how that money can be invested. It can only be invested in very low-yield government bonds, which do not come close to keeping up with the typical increase we see every year in inflation for health care premiums. So that's something we're still working on on Capitol Hill. The third change that we need to make is one that can be done administratively, and that's what we'll focus on here today. And it is about the way the Office of Personnel Management, who deals with retirement for all federal employees, including ours, even in our standing, you know, as an independent agency, the way that they value the Postal Service's pension fund. In this context, we're talking about the Civil Service Retirement Fund. So prior to 1970, the Postal Service was then called the Post Office Department, It was a full-fledged agency of the federal government, no different than the Department of Education or Labor. And then in 1970, the Postal Service, as we know it today, as an independent agency, was established. This issue is related to looking at those that worked prior to 1970 under the old post office department, whose retirement costs are the responsibility of the federal government, and also worked post-1970. So their retirement costs for the time post-1970 would be the responsibility of the Postal Service as we know it today. So the way OPM has valued this, basically the Postal Service had been overcharged by tens of billions of dollars for an amount that should be the responsibility of the government for those prior to 1970. So the ask here is really simple for us. 
there's a long line going back to the early 2000s with some civil service retirement reform, as well as the 2006 law, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, that establishes the legal authority for the administration, in this case, the Office of Personnel Management, to make this change. And that is to recalculate, evaluate their assets that they put into the Civil Service Retirement Fund using very standard private sector accounting practices. If they did that, the outcome would be that that fund would be overfunded by somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion. I guess as far as just the timing of why this is such a a focus issue now, what ultimately is this going to do for USPS's bottom line? It's really not a new issue for us. It's certainly true that we have placed an emphasis on it here recently. We have actually attempted to get this done through the two previous administrations, going back to the Obama administration and then also through the Trump administration. There was pushback for different reasons. The legal authority issue was one. Uh, Another was that there was some opposition under previous administrations of the folks that were at the Office of Personnel Management at the time. Um, Basically, they just weren't interested in dedicating the resources to doing the work. But what makes the timing important now is I mentioned the schedule. So the transfer that would happen next year, that's very important. But also the fact that we've got an administration in place here that from purely a policy perspective has indicated support for this. And we are also aligned in a way when it comes to the stakeholders, the leadership at the Postal Service, the Board of Governors, the governing body, the regulator, the Postal Regulatory Commission, the watchdog, the OIG. Uh, There's very broad support, support on Capitol Hill from members of Congress that for years have been involved, of both parties have been involved in postal reform and other things uh, about their long-term future. So we have tried to turn up the volume, so to speak, and um, and really highlight the need. The administration, I'd be remiss if I didn't say they've been very responsive. As I said, they have indicated support really going back to the, frankly, going back to the time that now President Biden was vice president on making the change. It's just a matter of working through their legal authority. And we're confident that the outcome will be that they'll go ahead and give that instruction here in the next few weeks. Changing gears here to postal crime, can you tell me a little bit more about what you are hearing from members on this issue? What more needs to be done to get ahead of this? It's an issue that, you know, really for us as a union is is kind of new, to be honest. I mean, for the longest time, most of my career, you know, we letter carriers could go into even the what would otherwise be viewed as most dangerous neighborhoods and the meanest streets and, and nobody mess with us. That really all changed during the pandemic. So we identified last year uh, just a, a few areas that we thought were really important that we focus on where uh, we had an opportunity to, to make some improvements. And, and unfortunately, this is not an issue where there's one thing that can be done and it's like a switch and it just stops. But a few things. Number one, look at and speed up using a technology solution that would better secure the way that letter carriers access mail. That's They're normally the target of these robberies is to gain access to the mail. So there's some technology solutions that we've been testing and, and post services actually implementing those in different parts of the country right now. Brian Renfro, national president of the National Association of Letter Carriers, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, for Defense Department financial management systems, a not-so-pretty picture. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. One reason the Defense Department can't get to a clean financial audit has to do with its multiple and sometimes outdated financial management systems. The DOD does have a plan to modernize the systems. The Office of Inspector General finds trouble with what officials and how they're going about it. We get the latest from OIG Project Manager's Chris Hilton. Mr. Hilton, good to have you with us. Thank you for having us. And Shelby Barnes. Ms. Barnes, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you so much. And fair to say this was an audit not so much of DOD finances, but of the systems that make up the financial network there and of their plans to modernize it. Is that a good way to put it? Yes, I think that's a great way to summarize what this audit was. We focused on the DOD's financial systems specifically. We reviewed the systems that were subject to the Federal Financial Management Improvement Act. Essentially, this is a law that requires the systems capture data and record transactions properly. And the DOD has established goals to, as you said, modernize its systems environment and to update its systems or stop using some of its old systems by 2028. However, what we found in our audit was that goal wasn't aggressive enough. And without a more modern systems environment, we found that the DOD will just continue to spend a lot of money on systems that don't record those transactions properly. And just to define the scope of this, it's not just the Pentagon and the fourth estate agencies, but does this also include the armed forces and their often multiple financial systems? Uh, yes, it definitely includes all of those systems and all those parts and pieces of the DOD. Uh, we looked at basically any plans related to maintaining the DOD's IT system environment and how they impact the DOD's financial statements. By the numbers, DOD's IT environment contains over 400 systems and applications and over 2,000 interfaces. This complex environment contributes to many of the DOD's challenges. Right, and it's not simply the multiplicity of them, but in some cases the age of them and the fact that they can't interoperate with one another in some cases. Fair to say? That is absolutely correct. I think some of the systems that the DOD still uses today are from the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Obviously, they weren't necessarily always intended to uh, produce financial statements. That's a newer requirement. So those are some of the challenges that the department's dealing with. Right, because in the 1950s and 1960s, they could count the beans, so to speak, but they don't meet what are considered contemporary standards for financial systems. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Plus, There's a certain cost in maintaining these old systems, and the multiplicity is a cost multiplier itself, fair to say. That is fair to say. One of our highlights in our report is that the DOD maintains 37 purchasing systems throughout all its components and pieces, and obviously that presents challenges from the perspective of, well, if you have a challenge across 37 systems, then you have to have 37 corrective actions. So that does present significant challenges for the department. Right. And you mentioned they have 400 systems with 200 interfaces. So that's even beyond the purchasing systems. 2,000 interfaces. I wish it was 200. 2,000. Yeah, I didn't write the third one down on my sheet here. Okay, so we've got the full scope of that. And let's talk about the scope of the plan. That is to say, what do they hope to do by 2028 at this point? What's their end vision for all of this? Yeah, so that's actually one of the things that we identified within our audit that wasn't particularly clear. The DOD has multiple plans, all of which focus on a simplified systems environment. That is the department's desire, and that is the DOD's goal. But what we found was that the plans didn't clarify what systems the DOD plans to keep 
and what systems they plan to retire between now and 2028. And so that was one of the things that we highlighted within our report that the DOD does need to clarify what systems it plans to update, to modernize, and which of those systems it needs to stop using. And we recommended that they stop using them as swiftly as possible. Right. It sounds, therefore, like the plan is more of a guidance to a future vision than a detailed modernization plan. Yes, I would say that's exactly what we found within our audit. We're speaking with Shelby Barnes and Chris Hilton. They are project managers in the Office of Inspector General at the Defense Department. And did you find that they're putting sufficient resources against this modernization effort? And is it in the right place? That is, is it a CIO project? Is it a CFO project? Or does it cross different boundaries? I would say they are definitely putting a lot of resources in in uh, the area. I think uh, our audit found that there was approximately $4 billion they spent in 2022 on these financial management systems. And I think that's one of the challenges we identified, obviously, from the perspective of you're spending so much on these systems that aren't going to get you where you want to go in the current year. And if you just kind of do things as swiftly as possible, like Shelby mentioned, they will get the department to a lot better place. I mean, is there a strategy to, say, take within one of the armed services, for example, or in something like DISA, which is a large component agency, and just consolidate within that piece, that component, which would maybe eliminate dozens, and then try to get the Air Force and the Army and DISA together? You know, I'm just making that up, but that idea. There definitely are goals that each of, you know, you mentioned like the Army, Navy, and Air Force, they all have their own goals. The plans that we were looking at were for the entire DOD. So I think that what you're speaking about definitely exists at that individual component level. Our review just determined at the entire DOD level, was the plan detailed enough to get the department where it wants to go? I would also add to that that there's significant initiatives there to move the department in the right direction, and, and there are indications that they're doing so. I know, for example, uh, U.S. Marine Corps, they transitioned to a modern ERP in an effort to obtain a clean audit opinion. So there is definitely traction there. I, I think one of the biggest things, talking about like it being a CIO challenge or a CFO challenge, or a military department challenge is really a team effort. And this is one thing that Mr. Steffens, the deputy chief financial officer, has really focused on. This is a team effort being DOD. DOD is not going to get across the finish line without everyone pushing in the same direction. So that's one thing that has been a laser focus of the department is really like this is a team effort both horizontally across CIO and CFO, but also vertically down to the components and up to DOD. And what were your major recommendations then? So one of the um, most significant recommendations that we made was for the department to create a strategy where it basically determines for all of its systems, whether or not they're going to update their system or if they're going to retire and stop using that system. Essentially, the DOD needs to, we, we believe that the strategy is important because the DOD really needs to wrap their arms around what they have now and they need to determine what's going to remain and and get those systems updated so that they can start producing good and reliable data. And these financial systems, are these a subset of the business systems that comprise the DOD? Because they've had several runs at business system modernizations over the years, at least the 20 years I've been looking at it closely. There have been several gambits to try to get around the business systems. Financial systems a subset here? 
Yeah, there are actually um, approximately 4,600 DoD IT systems, and only about 5% of them currently fall in the category of financial management systems. So it's a, actually a quite small subset of the bigger DoD system environment. And obviously trying to get our arms or DoD trying to get its arms around that environment is needed, obviously, to produce good financial data and hopefully obtain an audit opinion. And in general, on the plan they have, which doesn't have the detail that you feel they do need, but their plan to 2028, is this basically an in-house effort or do they have integrator support and programmer contractor support? It's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of contractor support in this effort, so it is diverse, I guess, in how they're addressing the issue. All right. And would you say that this is an urgent set of recommendations, this audit and this, this publication? I would say yes, that we feel that this audit report and this recommendation is really imperative. We know that the DOD is working very hard and putting a lot of resources towards modernizing its systems. But we feel that some of the recommendations within this report are really going to put the department on the right track to modernize their system environment maybe quicker. And that has a direct impact on so many things operationally and then also the financial statement audit. And your memorandum went to the secretary, the deputy secretary, the undersecretary, the comptroller, the CIO, the auditors, and so on of the different armed services. They know they've got a problem, fair to say. That's fair to say. And did they generally concur with your recommendations? Yeah, yes. Actually, um, we had 31 recommendations, quite a few. They concurred with all but one. And the one that they didn't concur with, uh, we did ask for further comments. And, and I mean, I think we're kind of headed in the right direction with that one as well. So they know it's a problem. That's one thing we did find during our audit was there's already a lot of efforts going forward. We're just making sure that they're best positioned to maintain systems that produce good data, use taxpayer dollars efficiently, um, and like Shelby said, uh, obtain an audit opinion by 2028. And in the meantime, we could use a few years without continuing resolutions. That might help. That is true. <laughs> that would help us all. Chris Hilton and Shelby Barnes, project managers with the Office of Inspector General at the Defense Department. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Homeland Security has to catch a horse that's galloped out of the barn. But first, faraway service members could soon have an easier way to absentee vote. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Military service members serving far from home like to vote. Now the Defense Department is testing the prototype of new technology for enabling absentee voting. The project is funded by DARPA. Here with How It Works, the Executive Director of Voting Works, Ben Adida. Mr. Adida, good to have you with us. It's great to be here. Well, tell us about the DARPA project, what your company is doing under it, what it is they want from you. So DARPA, as you may know, is the research arm of the Defense Department. And they research any number of things, including military technology. But in this case, they wanted to look into better ways to make military voters first class. And we, as an organization that cares deeply about voting technology being accessible to all, we bid on that proposal and we were selected 
a little more than a year ago to fulfill this contract. And we've been working on it for a little more than a year. We've got a little less than a year left on this contract. And it will provide, when it's done, a prototype of a voting system for the military that is open source, which means that all the software is available for everybody to see which means somebody else can pick it up. It's not going to be a proprietary voting works product, but it's important to know that it will be a prototype. It's not going to be ready to deploy. It's not going to be in use in 24 or anything like that. It's the beginning of a careful and deliberate process to see if we can do better by our military voters. Voting systems now have, for the most part, an integration of some kind of a console or a user interface machine that is not a PC for the most part and some software system underneath, and then at the other end there's a tallying system that's connected. Does this change that basic architecture, or what is it we're looking at here? It doesn't change the basic architecture of how voters experience the voting system. It changes it a little bit in terms of how they get their ballot and how they cast their ballot, because again, they're deployed in the field. So for example, if you are at home in the United States, you are likely voting on a paper ballot with bubbles that you fill in, and you're likely either mailing that in if you're in a vote-by-mail state, or you are putting it into a precinct scanner at your town hall or at your precinct, wherever you may be voting. In this case, because scanning ballots in the field is particularly tricky, scanners are very finicky. Instead, we have a system where voters fill out the ballot on a screen, on a touch screen, and the ballot is printed live so they can verify it and then mail it. And so everything is provided in a voting kiosk for that to happen. Now, I want to be clear, what I'm describing here, again, is a prototype. It may change significantly as we go through more user testing, but that's the vision we have right now, a standardized approach, a standardized kiosk that is secured, that, as you mentioned, is not a generic PC, you can't play solitaire on it, it's not an option. All you can do is receive your ballot Very importantly, authenticate with your CAC, which is the common access card that military members have, which has a chip on it, which has strong cryptographic signatures on it that allows for this authentication. And using that card and using the ballot that's been loaded onto the machine, they can vote in their election of their county with their local elections, their state elections, their county elections, and get that ballot printed live and mailed from there. We're also considering as part of this prototype, an electronic return of that same data at the moment that the ballot is finished. And so there's two paths. There's the electronic data that will arrive same day, of course, and the paper, which could be delayed. It's one of the key issues for military voters, which is that they have trouble getting their ballots in time and they have trouble returning their ballots in time because you know there's limitations to the military postal service, of course, right? Especially when they're in the field. And so getting that digital return which is then confirmed by the paper return, is really important to get military votes counted while still having that paper ballot for auditing whenever the audit happens after the election. We're speaking with Ben Adida, Executive Director of Voting Works, and you answered what was going to be my next question. Why bother with the electronic when all you're going to do is print it out? It is the electronic act of voting that is recorded and tallied under the system and, as you said, for verification and auditing post-facto. That's why the paper is created. That's correct. And so if you think about how voting happens at a precinct at home in the United States, that's the same thing. You scan your ballot and the scanner turns it into electronic data, and it is the electronic data that is tabulated and released 
on election night or the next morning. And then later, there is an audit that makes sure that the electronic data matches the paper that was cast by voters. So it's the same principle that we want to apply in the field. We don't want anything significantly different. However, because the electronic vote is being transferred over a long distance, as opposed to just being shuttled around with a USB drive, there is extra security and cryptography involved in securing that electronic transfer. But the reason we do that, as opposed to just mailing in the paper like you would a normal absentee ballot, is because we have seen many failures in the field of these ballots just never making it in time. And rather than continually pushing back the date of receipt, which pushes back official results, we can say, well, the electronic copy is going to get there by election night, which means you can close the election on election night. And as long as the paper gets there in time for the audit, you're good. I think innovation happens sometimes with very small observations. It's not a, it's not a major thing that we've, we noticed here. It's just a small gap between the date of tally and the date of audit that we can then use. We can use that gap to enfranchise military voters. And what is required on the part of the local precincts? Because you mentioned it's not just for, say, the presidential race or the national elections, which is really only one choice. Everything else is state-based and sometimes county and city-based to get that information into what is presented to that service member far away. One is from Nebraska and one is from Florida. That's right. So again, with the context that this is still research and we haven't solved all the problems, we wanted to talk about this openly so there can be discussion about how these problems can be solved. The way we're envisioning that happening right now is thanks to the latest federal certification efforts for standard voting equipment, There has been a standardization of data formats for election definitions. And so counties, which is usually where voting is administered at the county level, would need in this system a dedicated laptop workstation that allows them to upload the definition of their election into the system. And by definition of election, I mean which contests, you know, which candidates, all of that. And then which ballot style gets assigned to every voter, right? Because depending on where you live, you might be in a different congressional district, a different water district, and so you might be voting on different contests. And getting all that information in the standard format, then loaded into the voting kiosks so that voters can be presented with exactly the ballot that belongs to them. But there is some need for equipment. It's minimal, but some equipment at the jurisdiction level. And how do you test a system like this? Just hold a mock election and see if it comes out? It's a fantastic question. So the way you want to develop and test a system like this first is slowly and carefully. (laughs) You don't want to change elections too quickly. So what we've done so far is we've run usability tests on a couple of prototypes, which is, you know, obviously not real elections, just here's a fake election. We've gone to uh, one military location within the U.S. to, to run this usability test. We did a usability test at Fort Knox. And we'll be running some more in the next few months as we get feedback and improve the system and and so on. But all of these are fake. They're not real elections, right? This is just for usability testing. And then our hope is that maybe in the next year or 18 months, after the 24 election, probably in 25, our hope is to run a pilot, which would be in a real election, but at very small scale, you know, tens of voters maybe would be the the right way to do this. So that if something goes wrong, there's a way to address that and make sure those people's votes still get counted, but also get some important feedback about how this works in a realistic setting. And after a pilot, that's when you might think about, okay, well, if things worked, maybe we can think about scaling that up. But again, slowly, 
deliberately in the public eye so all of people's questions can be answered. And probably a good thing it's not going to be ready for this fall's 2024 presidential election. Absolutely not. Technology in our daily lives moves very fast. Technology in elections must move very slowly. It's required for us to be careful and mindful that you can't introduce things so quickly that elections then go wrong, right? That's just not acceptable. So slowly, deliberately, and definitely not in 2024. Ben Adida is executive director of Voting Works. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thank you for the time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Homeland Security has to catch a horse that's galloped out of the barn. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Among the dozens of mandates in recent executive orders, there's a bunch about artificial intelligence. Among them, a requirement for agencies to inventory their AI use cases for purposes of cybersecurity. Perhaps strangely, the Homeland Security Department put together an inaccurate list. That's according to the Government Accountability Office, which found a few problems. More now from the GAO's Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, good to have you back. Thanks again for having me. And so their list of AI use cases for cybersecurity was somehow inaccurate. Is this a big deal or a little deal? Well, we think it was important to really take a look at how DHS was implementing AI for cybersecurity use cases. They had an overall inventory of 21 AI use cases in their 2022 inventory, and they identified two specifically related to cyber This was a first attempt for GAO to apply its AI accountability framework, uh, which was developed in 2021. And so with agencies beginning to publish their inventories, we thought it was a good time to start taking a look at their efforts to implement AI. Right. So this framework then was developed way ahead of the executive order on artificial intelligence. Indeed. We recognize that with the growing use of AI and lots of interest and curiosity about it, we thought it was important that there be a framework to help entities, uh, particularly those who have an oversight role, but also those who are managing and overseeing AI projects, to be able to identify key practices and considerations that should be thought of as they're developing, designing, and deploying such systems. And before we get to the list of cybersecurity-related use cases, you have a long list of best practices. I think there were something like 16 of them, and DHS was only following four of them. Tell us about the elements of the framework and what they help an agency accomplish. So the framework is actually organized around four key principles, governance, data, performance, and monitoring. And really with these practices, the framework is really to help ensure that there's accountable and responsible use of AI. The particular systems that we identified that DHS had on its inventory, again, there were 21 overall, but there were two that they identified as being cyber related. As we set about to do our work, we began having conversations and discussions with the agency officials, and it became quite apparent that one of the two systems that they'd identified related to cyber actually did not have characteristics of AI at all. And so through our discussions with the agency, you know, we thought it was important for them to really take a look at the processes that they had in place for determining what systems actually end up on their AI use case inventory. Well, do you think that they were characterizing something as AI, even if it was not, just as a way of saying, oh, yeah, we're doing AI here in cybersecurity? 
I think there's just been so much attention and focus on it of late. People may not necessarily have the necessary background to fully take the necessary steps to assess whether or not the system truly is or the capability truly is AI. And so given a lot of the attention and focus that's been happening, you know, certainly there's a rush to submit information for these use case inventories. But it's really important that if you have individual components within an agency submitting such information, that there be a body that is verified and validating the submissions and ensuring that they really are characteristic of AI use cases. Right. Agencies maybe could be running into the tendency to just characterize simple automation or even orchestrated multiple automations as AI when it's not really strictly AI. Exactly. And so one of the models that we identified and that they acknowledged was not AI, was one that had a predictive modeling component but certainly was not AI as we explored that in in greater detail with the agency. And if they have mischaracterized one of their inventory items, then what's the practical effect of that? Well, we think it's important that if agencies are going to be publishing this information and making it available to the public to indicate what their use cases are, that that information be accurate, it be complete, and that it be reliable, because that's a really important element in establishing transparency, but more importantly, instilling public trust and confidence. We're speaking with Candace Wright. She's Director of Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the GAO. And the fact that just a couple out of one agency's sample was inaccurate, could that be an indicator that there's maybe something systemic in the government that needs to be tightened up? But it definitely raises the question that perhaps, you know, more should be done to take a look at what use cases were submitted and ensure that it is accurate and that necessary updates are occurring. And again, you have uh, DHS fully implementing four of 11 key practices that are related to those governance, data, performance, and monitoring areas. So even if those applications actually were AI, they still weren't executing up to snuff. Exactly. And so we've specifically analyzed and reviewed 11 practices in the agency's implementation of their system, which ended up being the automated PII detection system. And so we focused on looking at that uh, to identify the ways in which they were implementing these practices. As you mentioned, they were fully implemented four, but had mixed results in implementing the remaining seven One of the things that we identified is that data sources and reliability in particular were the areas that required the most attention. And much of this was because that we really couldn't find any evidence that the agency had addressed any of the key considerations for documenting the sources of the data and the origins of the data for the system. And in addition to that, we also found that they didn't have any evidence that any uh, data reliability assessments had been conducted. So those are pretty basic practices for careful AI. Well, the underlying data is such a key element, especially when you're going to be using these systems to make recommendations, make decisions. And so it's important to ensure that the underlying data are sound and that they are representative of the uh, solution that you're trying to attain. And what were your main recommendations for Homeland in this case? So for DHS, with respect, again, to the one system that we were actually able to review because we could confirm that it was AI, we made eight recommendations for them to really focus on, first of all, updating their inventory to make sure that it is accurate, make sure that they're expanding their process to not just receive information from their components that something is AI and should be on the inventory, but really to validate the accuracy of that submission. 
In addition, uh, with respect to the other issues that we identified around governance, around data, as well as performance and monitoring, many of the recommendations there were about ensuring that they have the appropriate documentation to provide evidence, especially for those in the oversight community, but also for the agency as well, who's managing and overseeing the implementation of the system, because you'll often have people coming and going on these systems. And so you want to make sure that you have that documentation to be able to refer back to as the system is being developed, but more importantly, being launched and operated so that you can ensure that it's operating as intended and achieving the expected outcomes. And they pretty much went along with you? Yes. So the agency actually did agree uh, and concur with the eight recommendations. And so we'll be monitoring that over time to see how they implement the recommendations. And will you be looking at other agencies' inventories to make sure that they characterize AI that really is AI and then are following the best practices? Well, I certainly can say that AI oversight is going to be a a huge part of our work going forward for the foreseeable future. Again, as you look at the ways in which agencies are starting to adopt use of the technology. Last year, we actually had another team that issued a government-wide review on agencies' implementation across the 23 largest civilian agencies. And there they found that over 1,200 use cases had been identified by these agencies. So we'll be continuing to monitor what's happening there uh, in that report, we actually made 35 recommendations to 19 different agencies, so a lot to look at. And certainly there's a lot of congressional action and attention on this topic, so more to come in the future. And by the way, even though you are a congressional agency, does GAO have an inventory and would you live up to what you ask of the agencies on there? Well, certainly GAO is also walking the talk on this topic. Uh, We actually published, recently published our inventory of AI use cases where we have about eight use cases that we have identified. Um, They're in different stages of concept exploration to prototyping. Uh, One project in particular organizes large volumes of text that might be found in various public documents, such as public comments from regulations.gov. And we think that these are really important steps to help us in gaining insight about the benefits and the limitations of using AI, but more importantly, that it can help us in evaluating how other agencies are using AI and help us in providing our oversight support to Congress. Fundamentally, agencies have to understand what is AI and what is not AI as the basic step in getting better at AI. There certainly is going to be a need to make sure that we're building knowledge within the federal government to understand the technology, as you said, what is or isn't, but more importantly, ensuring it's responsible practices to develop the system, design the system, deploy it, monitor it, and ensure that it's performing as desired and intended. You might say AI is a hammer, but not everything out there is a nail. That's certainly one way to look at it. Candace Wright is Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to join our Artificial Intelligence and Data Exchange. Today's guests for Day 2 include experienced AI users from DARPA, NIH, and the State Department. Find the webinar at federalnewsnetwork.com. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is out with some important updates to its cybersecurity framework. 
The CSF 2.0, as it's called, doesn't make major changes to cybersecurity best practices themselves. Rather, NIST officials say the updates are all about helping organizations understand and actually use the framework. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And what are the top changes in the cybersecurity framework, which everybody loves to read? Everybody loves to read the framework. It's a 10-year-old document, and CSF 2.0 retains the five core functions that anyone who is familiar with it would know. Identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Those are kind of the big buckets of cybersecurity, according to the framework, which a lot of organizations use. Federal agencies are required to use them. One of the big changes, though, in this 2.0 document is the addition of a govern function. Governance is a big emphasis for the CSF 2.0. It's aimed at making sure senior leaders in an organization account for cybersecurity risks the same way they would for financial or legal or reputational concerns. NIST Director Lori Lacasio unveiled the CSF 2.0 during an event at the Aspen Institute on Monday, and she spoke a little bit about the addition of this govern function. Govern really represents the fact that we have to bring this into the boardroom for discussion, right? It's recognized now that cyber is an important enterprise risk. That discussion initially did happen 10 years ago. We really weren't ready yet to, to incorporate it. There weren't best practices for how or what that meant. And so it did take this next evolution of the cybersecurity framework to really get here. And I guess she spoke about some of the bigger changes in technology policy government-wide that NIST people felt were driving the need for governance or people told NIST that they need to add governance in there. Yeah, NIST uh, received a lot of feedback on how there are just this really emerging set of cybersecurity requirements and regulations coming out across all sorts of different sectors and the new framework's governance section kind of addresses those issues around roles and responsibilities, policies, and oversight that a lot of folks might wonder about when they see these requirements coming down the pipeline, depending on if you're in critical infrastructure, if you're a federal agency, obviously, or a contractor. There's just a lot of cyber requirements out there. Sherilyn Pasco, director of NIST's National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, pointed out that the CSF itself, the framework, is used as a baseline for many of these regulations. One thing that we heard quite a bit from those that submitted comments is the need to kind of harmonize this growing suite of cybersecurity regulations around the CSF. We talk about the CSF being voluntary, but we're continually seeing it, increasingly seeing it mentioned in regulations, in federal grants, in different incentive programs, in state legislation. So the landscape around the CSF is changing as well. And what else is new outside of the governance, Justin, in the CSF 2.0? Yeah, the big thing NIST added is a lot around actual implementation examples. So the framework itself, if you read it, is very technology agnostic. It doesn't get into a lot of specific use cases, but what NIST added here is specific examples for small businesses, uh, mapping tools so you can kind of connect the cybersecurity framework to other sorts of requirements and frameworks, and even quick start guides and community profiles for different communities that might use the cyber framework, like the space industry, electric vehicles, uh, the natural gas industry, things like that. 
The other big thing to mention is that there's also a new focus on cyber supply chain risk management. That's something federal agencies and federal contractors will be really familiar with in 2024. It talks about how, you know, organizations should know who their suppliers are, should prioritize them and do their due diligence. Sure. So that's another big element of this renewed framework. And the other big thing on the scene, of course, is artificial intelligence, and the cybersecurity framework has to apply to that too, I suppose, right? That's right. The framework is actually, or the AI risk management framework that NIST has directly references the cybersecurity framework, and you hear a lot of conversation around AI safety and security, and of course, cybersecurity is a big piece of that conversation. Lacazio says that the goal for NIST is that all these different publications that they put out there actually kind of tie together because organizations at different points are going to navigate cybersecurity issues, privacy issues, AI issues, and they all have to be kind of interconnected uh, according to what NIST is putting out there. And at the top, we said that NIST changes to the framework include helping organizations actually make use of it. And tell us more about that one. Yeah, and NIST's uh, Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, which is really kind of the focal point for the framework itself, is really now focusing on helping organizations with those use cases they've put out there, helping different communities come in and build community profiles. Uh, PASCO says the center is actually working with 24 technology vendors to build different examples of a zero trust security architecture. And that work actually connects to the CSF as well. As part of that work, we're mapping the ZTA principles as well as the security characteristics of each of those products back to the CSF. So you can see how kind of the higher level outcomes that are found in CSF subcategories can be mapped back to kind of security capabilities that are found in products and services that you may acquire. I think that's really powerful to show really in real life how an organization might use the CSF. That's Sherilyn Pasco, director of NIST's Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. She might have the best diction of anybody in government, I would say there. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 